Our Bible reading is from Esther chapter 3 and 4. And I'm just going to recap on what we read last week in chapters 1 and 2. Xerxes is the king of the Persian Empire. Mordecai is a Jew, um, one of God's people, and Esther is his adopted daughter. So King Xerxes has sacked his queen, Queen Vashti, and chosen Esther to be queen instead. And Mordecai has saved King Xerxes' life. So reading um, in chapter three. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Amadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces within the order with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. 
the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him, to instruct her to go in to go into the sorry so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. He thanked went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. 
but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thank you, Alice and Iris. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would give us hearts that are willing to receive what you say, that you would help us and encourage us and challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, decisions come in different shapes and sizes. Um, some are very easy, small decisions. Um, what shall I wear today? Uh, what, what am I going to eat tonight? Which, which route should I take to church? Um, then there are big, difficult decisions. Where should I live? What, what Should I change job? Who should I marry? And then there are huge, agonizing decisions with far-reaching consequences, decisions which become defining moments. Uh, you think of decisions that prime ministers and presidents have to take on occasion. You think of JFK and his decision not to push the nuclear button uh, during the, 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis. A huge, agonizing decision with far-reaching consequences which stop nuclear war. Well, this morning, as we pick up again in Esther, in Esther's chapters 3 and 4, we learn about an impossible crisis and an agonizing decision. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a story which gets us right to the very heart of the good news about Jesus. Let me just recap again um, where we're up to in our story, if you weren't with us last week. Um, as Alice was saying, Xerxes is king of the Persian Empire. Uh, Mordecai is a, a Jew um, who lives in that empire. Esther is his adopted daughter. In terms of the story, King Xerxes has sacked Queen Vashti and chosen Esther to be queen instead. And at the end of last week, we saw Mordecai save Xerxes' life. And so we come to scene for an impossible crisis. Well, as, the, as the curtain comes, comes up, we're back at the King's Gate. Uh, the New Year's Honours Ceremony has just finished in the palace. Um, all of the royal officials are waiting outside. A trumpet is blown. A royal gun salute is fired for the man who's just received from the king the highest possible honour in the kingdom. Who is the man who's being honored? Not Mordecai, the Jew who just saved the king's life, but Haman, the Agagite. 
And as Haman comes out of the palace, I imagine looking ever so pleased with himself, a great hush descends as everyone kneels down to honor Haman. Everyone, that is, apart from Mordecai. As Mordecai refuses and stands tall, you can imagine the people around Kai kneel down, it's the law. No. The next morning, same thing happens. Why doesn't Mordecai kneel down to Haman? Well, it's not because kneeling down would be idolatrous, as in the story of Daniel. Um, I think it's because, um, ultimately, because Haman and Mordecai are enemies. So Haman is described uh, as an Agagite. Mordecai is described as a Jew. Uh, Agagites and Jews, I guess they were a bit like the, the modern, a bit like um, Palestinians and Israelis today, or Russians and Ukrainians, or the English and the Irish, whatever way you want to put it. There, there's history involved. There's ethnicity involved. In refusing to bow down, Haman is refusing to honor his enemy. And just by the way, this is one of those occasions in the book where the author just doesn't comment on whether this is right or wrong or wise or otherwise. He just doesn't comment on it, which might be a bit frustrating for us. We want to know, should you honor your enemy? What does that look like? But this is not a story about whether one should honor one's enemy or what that would look like. The result, though, of his decision and the reaction is catastrophic. We're told that Haman was enraged by Mordecai's refusal to buy down. But when Haman understands that Mordecai is a Jew, Haman goes absolutely nuclear. Just have a look at verse uh, 4, verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So what we have here is the beginning of a, a plot, a plot to wipe out the entire Jewish population, every last one of them, from the face of the empire, which is pretty much the face of the planet. A date is sought for their destruction. Haman goes to uh, some kind of fortune teller to ask his gods what would be the best date to do his plan. Uh, the dice are cast. I imagine Haman is hoping for a one and a one or a one and a two so that he could uh, do his plan on the second month of the year or the third month of the year. But the first die is a six. Then the second die is, roll, is, is rolled. And as it spins and tumbles and comes to rest on the table, Haman says, what is it? What is it? It's another six. What? The gods say, you need to wait until the 12th month, the month of Adar, to carry out your plan. It's almost as if something or someone or some kind of other power is slowing this whole plot down, the hidden hand of God. 
In any case, the date is set, the 13th day of the 12th month. Haman goes to the king to get his plan approved. The edict is stamped with the king's ring, and the message is sent out across the empire. I, King Xerxes, hereby decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all Jews, young and old, women and children, shall be destroyed, killed and annihilated, and have their goods plundered. And the distress that this brings is immeasurable, as you can imagine. As the message reaches the provinces, uh, perhaps God's people uh, gathered round to read it, uh, staring at it aghast, mouths wide open, paralyzed in disbelief at what they're reading. Some scream uncontrollably, others wail loudly. Chapter 4, verse 3 tells us, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes, because this is just awful, awful news. Because, of course, these people, these Jews, can do nothing about this. They are utterly helpless. You know, the empire is this great, big, unstoppable juggernaut. They are a frail, dispersed people. There's nothing they can do. The date has been set. Their fate is sealed. The sword will fall. And there is simply nothing they can do to stop it. Scene five. An agonizing decision. Over in the palace, Esther doesn't know about any of this. In her daily briefing, she's told that Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth and ashes. She sends him a messenger to ask what's wrong, and Mordecai sends the message back about the edict and the plot to annihilate the Jews. And then at the end of Mordecai's message, telling her what's going on, he gives her an instruction, an instruction that would have drained the color from her face. For verse 8, at the end of Mordecai's message to Esther, he says, this is what's happening. Go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for your people. Well, Esther sends a message back to Mordecai to protest saying, Mordecai, how can I possibly do that? I can't just approach the king. You know the law. Anyone who approaches the king without being summoned must be put to death unless he spares them. And I'm out of favor. The king hasn't asked to see me in a month. This is a suicide mission. Now, maybe as we read that and hear that, we think, Esther's being a bit dramatic here. The king is hardly going to kill you if you come to him and ask him a favor. But actually, she's right. This could very much end with Esther's execution. Just think about what we know about Xerxes. He is a control freak. He is so against doing people favors and being interrupted that he's made a law against it a law which is punishable by death. 
I mean, who does that? He has absolute power, a very, very tender ego. He's got this tendency just to fly off the handle. He's impulsive and unpredictable, and he's just signed a warrant to annihilate all of Esther's people. The only hope that, the only hope that Esther has, she knows, in this, in this circumstance, is that she's beautiful. But the king hasn't wanted to see her for a whole month. The king isn't into her anymore. Other girls have caught his eye instead. And so she's quite right. She says, Mordecai, how can I possibly do this? This is a suicide mission. Well, Mordecai sends back his answer, and it is very straight talking. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai challenges her false sense of security. He says to her, look, if you want to try to save your life by doing nothing and remaining silent, silent, then know for sure that you will lose it. If you try and save your life, you will lose it. Because to remain silent now would be to side against God's people. And it would be to put yourself under God's judgment. And so he says, Esther, you've got to decide. What are you going to do? Who are you? Which identity are you going to embrace? Are you going to be first and foremost the queen of Persia? Or are you going to be first and foremost a member of the people of God? You've got to decide. This is crunch time. To sit on the fence would be to decide against God's people and to put yourself under God's judgment. So he challenges her false sense of security. And then he gets her to reflect and to consider whether, in fact, God hasn't made her king made her queen for this moment, for this very purpose, to be used as an instrument to rescue his people. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He doesn't know for sure. He can't see the future. He doesn't know how the king is going to react. But he says, maybe, just maybe, God has been at work behind the scenes and brought you to this position to use you as his instrument to save his people. And so having heard Mordecai's message, Esther has got an agonizing decision to make. What is she going to do? How is this going to go? What is she going to decide to do? She pauses deep in thought. And then I imagine with tears in her eyes, with hands trembling from fear, she stands. Tell Mordecai to gather the Jews in Susa to fast for me, because I'm going to the king, and if I perish, I perish. What do these two scenes teach us? I think they teach us three things. 
Firstly, they put this question to us. Will you thank God for Jesus? Now, maybe that seems a bit of a leap. But think about it. Who are we in this story? Who's closest to us? I guess our tendency is to associate with Esther, to put ourselves in Esther's shoes. But actually, well, we will think in a moment about how Esther is an example to us, but really in this story, we're not Esther. We, well, we are like the people in the provinces scattered all over the world, facing the terrifying prospect of a fixed date when the sword will fall. That's who we are in this story. Not facing some evil threat from a cruel enemy like they were, but nevertheless facing a crisis, facing the prospect of God's righteous judgment, facing the prospect of a fixed date when his sword will fall against us for our rebellion against him. That is who we are in this story. And it is an impossible crisis because like the people in the story, there is nothing that we can do to stop this. Nothing at all. There is no good that we can do to make up for our rebellion that got us in this position. There is no sacrifice that we can make to atone. There is no excuse that we can offer for our sin to defend ourselves. We are helpless. I wonder, do you realize that? And yet there is still hope. Because even though we can do nothing to stop this, God has moved someone into position to plead on our behalf. Someone who, like Esther, was terrified by the prospect, sweating even drops of blood. Someone who dialogued back and forth urgently with their father, exploring whether there wasn't some other way. And yet someone who, at the end of the day, despite their fear, stood tall and said, with extraordinary courage, I will plead for my people, even though I know I will perish. You see, in Esther, we see a signpost to the Lord Jesus and to his extraordinary courage to walk towards certain death for us, to intercede for us, to mediate for us, and to bear in his body on the cross the righteous judgment of a holy God against our rebellion so that we might be spared. So as you reflect on the person of Esther, maybe over lunch today, this afternoon, will you reflect on the person of Jesus and your helplessness without him? And will you thank God for his extraordinary courage in perishing to offer us rescue? I think that's the first question that this asks us. Will we thank God for Jesus? Second question I think this challenges us with is will we decide to follow Jesus? Now again, that might seem like a big jump from the story of Esther. But you see, Mordecai's challenge to Esther, it is in fact a lot like Jesus' challenge to us. So in Mark chapter 8, Jesus has got this great crowd coming with him. 
And they've seen him do miracles. They've seen him teach. And so he turns to them, a bit like Mordecai turns to Esther, and talks very, very straight with them, challenging their false sense of security. A few verses from Mark 8. Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And so this is the, the decision, the challenge that each one of us face. Am I going to stay silent? Am I going to choose life in the palace, so to speak? Am I going to choose to seek to gain the whole world? Am I going to say no to being, to being and being known as one of God's people, even though that would leave me under God's coming judgment? Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Or am I going to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus? Am I going to receive his forgiveness and eternal life? Am I going to be known publicly as one of his people, even though that may mean being opposed and hated? Jesus says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the decision that each of us have got to take. And of course, as we weigh up that challenge, there is a time to reflect. And we've got to, uh, Jesus' claims deserve to be weighed up seriously. We've got to think through this challenge properly. It's not just something to say, oh, yes, I'll, yes, I'll do that. No, it's got to be thought through seriously. There is a time for reflection. But as Esther 3 and 4 is teaching us, there is also a time for a, de a, a decision, a crunch time when we've got to decide. A time when even when you've done your thinking, and when even though you may not know everything, you know enough, and you've got to decide one way or the other. And maybe today is your day to decide, what way am I going to go on this? Am I going to decide to respond to the gospel by following Jesus? If you haven't done that, that's a decision you've got to take at some point. Why not today? Will we decide to follow Jesus? Then thirdly, and finally, I think this gets us to ask the question, will we be brave where God has put us? One writer puts, uh, puts it this way, I think very helpfully. He says, sometimes we resent the situations in which we find ourselves, our families, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our health. We wish we were not where we are, with whom we are, or how we are. We too need to hear the words, maybe God has placed you just where you are for such a time as this, so that in this difficult place, you too can speak bravely for truth and for the gospel. You know, we sometimes assume that God isn't interested in using regular Christians who do regular jobs and live in regular neighborhoods. But don't forget God's hidden hand, because, of course, he has put each of us 
exactly where he wants us to be used by him for his purposes. So the question for us isn't, am I in the right job to be used by God? Am I in the right neighborhood to be used by God? That's the wrong question. The right question is, am I prepared to be brave for him wherever he has put us? In the circumstances that I face, am I going to be brave enough to do what is right and not do what is wrong? Am I going to be brave enough to speak up and reach out? Am I going to be brave enough to take initiative and to risk it all and to do whatever God's word instructs me to do? We can't answer that question for other people. We can only answer that question for ourselves. Am I going to be brave where God has put me? I don't know what that would look like for you in your circumstances, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you do, though. Maybe God is pressing on your conscience what that would look like, where you need to be brave. Will we be brave where God has put us? And here's the amazing thing we see from these chapters. If we will embrace the call to be brave for him, who knows, who knows what God may do through us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his courage. We thank you for his willingness to perish in order to mediate for us, to atone for our sin, that we might be rescued. Please help us, Heavenly Father, as we seek to follow him, as we seek to take up the challenge follow him and to be brave wherever you have put us. Help us, we pray in this. We need your help. In Jesus' name. Amen.